thank you for this day again. We, we've been touched by your word already, and we pray, Lord, that as we hear from your word from the Gospel of Luke this morning together, that we would take to he- heed of what you're teaching us. Let it pierce our hearts, Lord, and affect our lives and how we live for you. May we grow in grace through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so title of the message this morning is A Memo from the Produce Manager. And uh, this morning we're going to talk about figs, and more than just figs, though, we're going to look at how Jesus illustrated the idea that what is in our hearts will manifest in what we do, how we act, how we speak, and how we live. In our passage today, Jesus speaks of good fruit and bad fruit and goes on to use a further illustration of spiritual life, a house built either upon the rock or a house with no foundation. So we're going to look at the whole passage and then we're going to divide it into two parts uh, and look at each part separately. Part one will be the good fruit and the bad fruit and then part two we're going to look at where our foundations lie. So starting at Luke 6 and verse 30, 43, Jesus says, for no, good fruit, uh, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house, who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose and the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. When I was preparing the sermon for last week, I happened to be visiting uh, the website of One for Israel, which is a ministry dedicated to sharing with the Jewish people that Jesus is their Messiah. And they have all kinds of wonderful resources, and I particularly enjoy the videos of testimonies of Jewish people who have found their Messiah. In fact, there's several times where I've found myself watching for an hour or two just being encouraged by their testimonies. Um, It happened that on their website was a short article on figs, and I want to read a portion of this for you. And the title of the article was called The Symbolism of Figs in the Bible. And it said this, God gives good gifts. When he gave Israel to the Jewish people, it was not just any old piece of land. God says in Deuteronomy 8, The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey. There are seven species of food mentioned here, which would be abundant in the land promised to his people. There is so much richness in what God has created and placed in this land for his people, not just in their good taste and nutrition, but in their meaning, too. And the fig tree in the Bible is a fruit that crops up again and again because God does nothing without purpose. There is something that just feels rich and decadent about figs. 
the amazing deep colors, the distinctive shape, and the glorious gentle smell. It is no wonder that this feature of God's creation crops up repeatedly in the Bible in wonderfully symbolic ways. First of all, we see the figs in the Garden of Eden, covering up the shame of Adam and Eve. In fact, it's the only tree specified that we know for sure was in the garden. Throughout the scriptures, the plant becomes a symbol of prosperity, well-being, and security. Along with the vine, to sit under the plentiful shade of your own fig tree is the epitome of safety, peace, and well-being in many biblical passages. These plants don't grow overnight, and it takes time to culture and nurture them. Their maturity indicates that the gardener has been continuously and steadfastly there, tending to their growth over the years. For Israel, exile and wandering had been a byword for punishment, and so sitting under your own vine and fig tree is a sign of blessing and security. The fig tree in the Bible is also symbolic of Israel itself. It often symbolized the health of the nation, both spiritually and physically. Hosea 9.10 says, When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. Later, the Bible tells us of a glorious time when in 1 Kings 4.25, it says, Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Later still, following the minor prophets, we can see warnings to the nation of how God would bring destruction and failure of crops as part of his judgment against them, specifying empty fig trees that were stripped bare and fruitless. These passages can be found in Joel, Habakkuk, and Haggai. It's almost as if the fig was something of a barometer of the health of the nation, taken away as punishment and flourishing at times of restoration. In the New Testament, we can also see Yeshua using the symbolic fig tree. Firstly, in the calling of Nathanael, who is sitting under a fig tree, like a true Israelite. Later, he curses the fruitless fig tree, representing unfruitfulness, and then uses the fig as a metaphor of how we should recognize the signs of the times. This end times warning system with the fig analogy is picked up again in Revelation 6. So from Genesis to Revelation, the fig tree... Uh, features strongly in scriptural symbolism. There are many more interesting references not mentioned here, which are also worth exploring in Judges, Song of Songs, and Parables of Yeshua. Today, Israel is full of fig trees. Well, huge, well-developed, shaded, and mature. They produce two harvests of fruit a year. The early crop around Passover time in the spring, even before the leaves have unfurled, and the biggest, most juicy fruits come into their own in September, close to the Jewish holidays of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Feast of Tabernacles, respectively. It is possible to consider that the flourishing of figs today in Israel is a messianic sign in itself. The people are back in the land, the fig trees are abundant and plentiful, and the nation is now waiting for restoration to come. We know that the restoration will be a spiritual revival, and all his people greeting their Messiah, Yeshua, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, or welcome Yeshua, our Messiah. Come, Lord Jesus, and find us ready. So that's the end of that short article. And that was interesting to me, and I felt it would give our study a little extra flavor this morning. So let's try to see what Jesus was teaching now uh, toward the end of Luke chapter 6. Again, back to verse uh, 43. 
For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does the bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. If you ever want to strike up a conversation with a produce manager at your local favorite grocery store, here you go. He might come up and say to you, how are you finding things today? Well, let me tell you, I see fruit here. Some good, not some not so great. You know, though, Jesus said, no good tree bears bad fruit. You know, he could use that as an opening to share the gospel. At first glance, what Jesus is saying here may seem unnecessary because it's so obvious. Of course, bad trees don't produce good fruit. Or bad trees produce good, uh, or bad trees don't produce good fruit. Good trees don't produce bad fruit. But clearly, Jesus isn't making simply a horticultural observation here because he proceeds to say in verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So then, the lesson is about the heart. The produce is just an illustration. Jesus was speaking to people from an agricultural society. They knew all about farming and produce, and they knew that fruit trees produce after their own kind. Jesus' illustration, then, is both simple and powerful. This is one of those illustrations where next to no one could walk away saying, I wonder what he meant by that. Now, other times, Jesus gave parables that many people did not understand. And that was a fulfillment of prophecies about him, that seeing they would not see and hearing they would not hear. Many people miss, uh, missed the messages of the parables. In some cases, his followers understood what others did not. And sometimes he took his disciples aside to explain the parable to them, as he did with the parable of the sower. Now, we do well to remember some of our little Bible study habits here. Remember that Scripture cannot mean anything differently than it was intended to mean to the first audience. Okay, it's a very important um, concept of studying your Bible. A passage should never mean to you something other than it would have meant to the first audience. Okay? Um, and the first audience are the first ones who either heard that teaching or read it, um, but usually heard it. So we like to see who the audience is when we're looking at any particular passage. Paul's letters to the, were to churches. Uh, he wrote to the various churches. He wrote to some individuals, such as Timothy and Titus and um, Philemon. Uh, the Old Testaments were at times speaking to the people of Israel. Sometimes they were speaking to other nations. Sometimes a prophet spoke directly to an individual, such as Nathan did with King David. Usually you don't have to look very far as you're in a passage to learn who is being addressed in a certain, port of, uh, a certain portion of Scripture. Um, and our text this morning is no difference. Um, if we go back to Luke uh, chapter 6 and verse 20, uh, which we, we learned about some weeks ago, we're told exactly who Jesus is speaking to on this occasion. And he lifted up his eyes on the disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. You'll remember those were some of the Beatitudes. So the original audience that heard this passage was his disciples. It's people who are following him and trying to learn from him. And if you were here last week, you will remember that immediately preceding our passage this morning was a warning about judging others. 
If you missed that sermon, I recommend you go to our website or the app or wherever to listen to it because we discuss the fact that many people have a wrong idea about Jesus' command to judge not because we are to judge with right judgment. So after warning, though, about not judging, Jesus now is telling us something about rightful judging, that we know trees by their fruits. In other words... Words, actions, behaviors, and words of people often manifest something that is in their hearts. And we would do well to pay attention, especially to the words we hear and the words we speak, since Jesus taught that out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. James wrote quite a bit about the tongue and its evils. Part of that is in chapter 3 of James, starting at verse 7. He said, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring uh, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. From the same mouth come blessing or cursing. Sometimes we say something like, oh, you kiss your mom with that mouth? You know, the the same mouth curses and, and blesses. And there's a conflict there. So I wonder where James learned this concept. Could it be that he had been listening carefully to his master, Jesus, and took very seriously this teaching? Jesus said it. James said it. And I believe that, in a sense, we know this innately. And that is why it's dangerous to joke about things that could be taken to be mean or hurtful. Because what Jesus is teaching and what James is teaching is that what we, really, what we say really does have something to do with our hearts. In Matthew 5.22, Jesus said, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And then in the Proverbs, we have many, many warnings about the tongue. In fact, in one of my Bibles, uh, I underlined every proverb that I could f- determine had to do with communication. And I found at least 124 of them. And, and I actually made a list of them. I just remembered I left them on the table in the Sunday school room. Um, but I found a list of 124 proverbs that have to do with communication. Uh, and you can look them up on your own, maybe underline them in your Bible, try to memorize some of them, because the reason I underlined them is because I need a reminder of all those things again and again and again. And so uh, I often go through them to remind myself. Now, I'm not going to read all 124 of those Proverbs right now, but here's a few examples of how Proverbs teaches us about our communication First of all, putting down others, Proverbs eleven twelve. whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but the man of understanding remains silent. 
Proverbs 10.32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked what is perverse. Proverbs 6.12-19, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Proverbs 10, 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 16, 23, the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. Proverbs 19, 19, a man of great wrath will pay the penalty for if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. Proverbs 22, 10, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. Proverbs 22.11, he who loves purity of heart, whose speech is gracious, will have the king as his friend. Proverbs 22.24 and 25, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Proverbs 26.17, whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Try that sometime, see what happens. Um, Proverbs 26.20, For lack of wood the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. Again and again we learn from Scripture that it matters what we say, and Jesus teaches us that what we say and the actions we do are fruits of what is within. Now, it's important to distinguish some important things here. First note that James said if anyone could control their tongue, they would be a perfect person. You know that only Jesus was perfect, so where does that leave the rest of us? Less than perfect, imperfect, however you want to put it. Uh, Remember, if you are in Christ, though, what your nature was and what it is now. You were dead in sin, but now alive in Christ. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then again, he picks up in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace by no means? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once enslaved of sin, once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, 
leading to sanctification. So Paul is teaching believers that before they came to Christ, they were dead in their sin. They were slaves to sin. But now in Christ, we have a new master. Our new master is Jesus, and we are slaves of him, meaning we are slaves to righteousness. So before we came to Christ, our fruit was bad because it was fruit from a bad tree, a tree full of the rot of sin. But now we've been made new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Yet sometimes our fruit still looks like bad fruit. Why? Well, even though a healthy tree does not bear bad fruit, I mean, it doesn't produce it when it's bad to begin with, yet even a healthy tree can have some of its fruit damaged by pests. Our nature now in Christ is to produce good fruit, but sometimes in the flesh we still battle with the sin within us, and that causes damages to that fruit. Don't despair, Christian. When you produce bad fruit, but rather get out the pruning shears. You see, if you've ever had a fruit tree or something like a hibiscus tree or roses, you may see nothing but lots of buds, and yet the good gardener will prune, even sometimes pruning out buds that have not yet budded. Or perhaps the tree is generally healthy, but some leaves are, or some branches have been damaged because there's some bugs attacking. Then you cut those off. Because if you want the entire tree healthy, you must cut out those parts that are not. Your nature, if you're in Christ, is that you're a healthy tree. Yet the pruning must continue because sin is always knocking at your door. For the person not in Christ, the nature is sick, desperately sick, full of deceit. They may produce some okay fruit by accident, but it'll never truly be good fruit. Their nature will be to produce bad fruit even what may appear good will have some issues with it even if it's not seen immediately and that is because the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks good or bad whatever our nature is that is the type of fruit that we will produce well then we must consider that the tree needs to be healthy now Jesus gives another metaphor for spiritual life, and that is the foundation it's laid upon. So Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. But when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So Jesus is challenging those who would say that they're his, but they act nothing like him. He wants disciples who do what he tells them to do. James said we need to be doers and not hearers only of the word of God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If then we claim to be his... We must live as though we truly are. If we do the, thing, uh, the things he teaches, we are like that man who made sure the foundation was set on a rock. If not, we're like the one who built without any foundation. And of course, 
We know what happens to the two houses in Jesus' metaphor. Both houses are built, but one on stable rock, one with no foundation at all. Every now and then, a building collapses. And, and you'll see on the news a report of the tragedy of the building collapsed. And very often, once everything has been investigated and the report comes in, there turned out to be a problem with the foundation. On the other hand, a good foundation can withstand quite a bit. Everyone remembers the 2001 attack on the World Trade Center towers, but not everyone knows about or remembers that in 1993, Al-Qaeda terrorists set off a massive bomb in the parking garage of the World Trade Center. It was supposed to cause one of the towers to fall into the other tower. That was how they designed the bomb, and the bomb went off. The bomb did kill some people. It injured many, but the tower did not fall. Why? It was on a very solid footing. The steel supports of the building went down very deep into the bedrock below. Now the towers did fall in 2001, but that wasn't because of a bad foundation. It had a solid foundation. So what is our foundation? What's the foundation of the church? The foundation of the church is the prophets and apostles, Christ himself being the cornerstone. Where do we find out what Christ said? What the apostles and the prophets taught in the scripture. So where should our foundation be? It must be based on the word of God. This word of God that never fails and always holds up no matter what comes against it. If that is our foundation, then we will be able to stand even when we are under distress. If we need good roots and good health to bear good fruit, and if we need a foundation to stand on, Let it be the word of God. R.C. Sproul said, God is pleased to use scripture to pierce the heart and awaken us to faith. History is replete with stories of how great people were converted through the power of the word. John Murray said, Scripture is the only revelation of the mind and will of God available to us. That is what the finality of Scripture means to us. It is the only extant revelatory word of God. So it is Scripture that protects us from ourselves, protects us from false teachers and bad doctrine. As Martin Luther said, I've observed that all the heresies and errors have arisen not from Scripture's own plain statements, But when that plainness of statement is ignored and men follow the scholastic arguments of their own brains. And this is why the Bible must be preached, not merely taught. Spurgeon said, A sermon, moreover, comes with far greater power to the consciences of the hearers when it is plainly the very word of God. Not a lecture about the scripture, but scripture itself opened up and enforced. So may scripture be our only source because it goes beyond the head knowledge. It pierces our very hearts. The word of God, living and active, the word of God, the hammer and fire of Jeremiah, the word of God, our very life. Where will we go? When Jesus preached a hard message about marriage and divorce and then told his disciples that no one can come to him unless it's granted by the father, some of the disciples left him. They said, this is too tough teaching for us. We're out of here. And Jesus looked at the 12 and he said, do you want to leave too? And Peter said, no, 
You have the words of eternal life. John 6, 61 tells us this story. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? This is a teaching on divorce that he had done. Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. This flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. No one can come to me unless it's granted by my Father. This teaching of Jesus offended people because what happened next after this? Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Words of eternal life given to us in the Bible, God's holy word. And these words of eternal life are for all who come to Christ and only those granted by the Father. Still today, people get furious at the idea that one can only truly come to Christ if it's granted to them by the Father. They rail against it. They say this goes against free will. Yet this is what Scripture teaches, that no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. He does this through his word, and he owes to no one an automatic pass. Yet he gives graciously to those who are his. Salvation only comes through the word of God, which is heard, preached, read, And when salvation comes, we are to know his word better as we go so that we can have a solid and strong foundation and healthy roots so that we can produce good fruit. We need God's word. We need to know the doctrines of God. They are not unimportant. We cannot be those who say, we have faith in Christ, that's enough. I don't want to confuse things with this huge study of it. No, we must do the hard work of studying scripture together. This is one of my constant prayers for our church, that God would put on all of our hearts a desire to go deeper, to know him better so that our foundations get stronger, to withstand attack, and so our roots get healthier so that we may produce good fruit. And so as we close this time of preaching together, uh, I want to pray that the Lord would seal this on our hearts, Lord. We thank you for this message, and we ask, Lord, that you and your graciousness uh, would cause us all to see the areas that you would have us work on in our own lives. Lord, if, if we're producing bad fruit, may you reveal that to us so that you may do some pruning work. Lord, may we not be afraid to have that pruning done, even though it may be painful for a moment, Lord because we know it'll bring greater health later. And Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you'd continue to grow in us a longing to know more about you through your word and a longing to live it out in our lives as we shed the past of our lives and the sin that clings to us. May we grow in righteousness and holiness with your help. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Now, before you guys start, um, I, I think uh, my good friend Leland is here. Is it all right if we pray for you, Leland? So if you're, if you're in that area, go, go. Leland's been having a lot of trouble with his legs. Would some of you go around him and just, uh, I'll pray from here, but we'll, we'll have people come lay hand on you. Um, I don't like to see my friend hurting. I love you, Leland. We're going to pray for you and keep praying for you until the Lord delivers you. Lord, thank you for Leland. Thank you for the testimony of faith that he faithfully brings to kids week after week. His confidence in you as his ultimate healer and more importantly, his Savior, is an inspiration to us all, Lord. Now, Lord, our friend is hurting. Our brother is hurting. We pray, Lord, that she would do a healing work on Leland, that he would have the pain in his leg removed completely, that he would be able to be mobile without the scooter. Lord, we pray for a miraculous work that you would do in his life, that you would manifest your love in that way to him, and that he would sense that he has a whole body of believers here cheering him on. May his heart be healed as well, Lord, and, and full of joy as he leaves here today, knowing that he's part of this great family. In Jesus' name, amen.